please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. You can also read along on page 7 of your bulletin. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who, who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to share an interesting phenomenon with you. Um, you know, for the better part of the last few decades, people have been trying to live without God. No surprise, right? But they're finding now, this may be a surprise to you, they're finding now they can't live without God. With all the technology, the scientific advancements, and our educational advancements in our culture today, we are finding that 
Technology and science and education are insufficient to answer some of the most important questions in our lives. Why am I here? What is my purpose and meaning? Where am I headed? Where am I going? Why is there suffering? Why is there poverty and cruelty and injustice in the world? How, what's going to happen to that? You see? And so today, we're actually starting to see a resurgence of people returning to some form of spirituality, some form of, of um, religiosity. We're starting to see a resurgence as a result of people coming back to the church. They're returning. Now, of course, people are also looking at other faiths. So the question today, the question that we're asking is not, is there a God, but rather, which God do I believe? Which God do I trust? Now, <clears throat> especially the last few seasons, People have been consumed with anxiety and sadness, depression, fear in our day-to-day more than any other time. I mean, there is a lot of discontent in our marriages, even in this congregation, in our marriages. So our marriages are falling apart. There are, there are careers. People just so discontent in their careers, their place in the world, and so people just want to give everything up. We're seeing that. People are so discontent in their relationships and, and as a result, they're abandoning friendships that have lasted gener- like, like a generation. They're, they're betraying one another over peripheral issues. So we put so much pressure on ourselves today, and we're giving up. It's shutting us down. We are shutting down. That's what's happening. There are people inevitably here in our congregation, without a doubt, who've contemplated even taking their own lives. So we need to take a, a moment and get into this narrative here of Elijah because he lived in a very similar context. He lived in a very similar world. Where did Elijah get the answers that would comfort him? Where did he get the comfort? Where did he get uh, the answers? Where did he get that sense uh, to endure when his life was caving in, when his world seemed to be caving into his life? I'm going to have to offer you some context here. We have Ahab. He's the king of Israel and his wife, Jezebel. Jezebel's his wife, she's the queen, and they were both extremely idolatrous. They've abandoned God, abandoned God's word, and they've turned their people, God's people, to the prophet, to the, to the idol, Baal. And so God sends the prophet Elijah to confront, essentially to prosecute all of Israel for their idolatry, for their oppression, for their wickedness and evil. And Elijah, he gathers all these people at Mount Carmel, and there he challenges the prophets of Baal to pray, to pray to their God. And so they pray, and they pray, and they pray, and there's nothing. But then Elijah prays, and what happens? Fire comes down. Fire comes down, burns up all of the sacrifice, burns up all of the wood, all the rocks around, burns up the entire altar itself. He pours water into the altar before he, he prays. And so the water, I mean, the wood is just soaking with water. And when he prays, the water and the soil around just completely vaporizes. In a sense, it's like poetic justice. <laughs> In a sense, it's like poetic justice. Why? Because Baal, Baal was known He was worshipped as the Lord of the earth. He was worshipped as the Lord of rain, the Lord of the dew, the Lord of water. That's what makes up the economy of that culture, the agrarian culture. Baal was the god of the earth. He was the god of water. It's why Elijah takes uh, the altar and he pours water all over the altar. And the fire of God, this is the presence of God. It comes down, 
burns up everything, including the soil and the water. And when everybody, they see it, they fall down, they prostrate themselves, they're in awe, they're terrified, and they say, the Lord, he is God. What does Elijah do? It's that last verse in chapter 18. He runs ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Why does he do that? You see, Jezreel is the capital of Israel at that time. And so here's King Ahab and Jezebel. They're trying to kill Elijah. Why does he go to the capital? Elijah is so confident at this point that this would mark the turning point for Israel's faith in God, for all of them to return, and so he's going for the jugular. But Jezebel is now even more determined to kill Elijah now, you see? And so Elijah, he has to run, and he's confused, and he's disappointed, he's depressed. Because of this incident at Mount Carmel where the fire came down, it didn't change a single thing. So he goes to the desert in the wilderness, and he ends up at Mount Horeb, and he basically he's saying, who is God? Where is God? I mean, is there a God? Because if so, I don't, I don't know him. It's, it's, he's giving up. He says, I don't get him, because after everything that I did, after all my work, nothing changed. And so he's in this really dark place. I mean, have you been there? I mean, I've definitely been there. Have you been there? Like feeling like, like giving up? I mean, every major setback of mine in college, every major setback in graduate school, uh, during every stage of Metro and its growth, there, was, there were as many challenges, and, and yeah, I mean, all we see are the, are the challenges, and it makes you feel like giving up. Every, every stage of life, for that matter, including, I mean, in my marriage and the miscarriages that my wife and I endured, Every harsh season, I mean, I've been through it. You've been through it, I'm sure. When you're there, it feels like you've got no one around. I mean, your world kind of closes in on you. And it feels like there's, there's nobody around. It feels like everything you're touching, you are so brittle. It feels like anything you're going to touch is, gonna, is so fragile. I mean, you're just ruled by fear and ruled by loneliness and there's darkness. If that's you and you feel like giving up in your relationships or in your work or in the church or on God himself, God here shows Elijah who he is. And here he's reminding us who he is. Who is he? He's a compassionate God. He's a wise God. He's a gracious God. Those are our three points today. We're going to look at the God of compassion, the God of wisdom, the God of grace. First, we're going to look at the God of understanding, the God of compassion. He's a compassionate and understanding God. In this passage, Elijah, he's in despair. By the way, if this is fiction, you would never write fiction like this. This, is, uh, this, is, this would be terrible fiction. You know, you have this amazing, powerful experience, this episode, this narrative, oh, just one chapter prior at Mount Carmel, and then in an instant, Elijah's on the run, and he's depressed because nothing happens. It's terrible. It would be terrible fiction, but you see, this is not fiction. Well, then, this is also not the kind of nonfiction content that you would include, especially in ancient times, to win people over to God. There isn't a whole lot of action. He's just depressed, and he's in darkness, and he's just sad. How are you going to win people to God with that? Would you write nonfiction like that if you were trying to win people over to God? Why is it there in the Bible? It's because it happened. And because, I mean, we know this is reality. This is how life is. Verse 3, 
Before, Elijah is confident. He's strong. Now he's scared and he's tired. He's just drained. He's totally lifeless. And he lets his servant go. Why? I mean, his servant was not hired to clean his toilets. That's not what we're talking about his servant. This is his ministry team. This is his pastoral team. He's laying off his entire team in a sense because what he's saying is, look, I quit. It's over. You see what happened? It doesn't get stronger than that. And nothing changed. So it's over. I'm done. I'm finished. I've been there. It's this terrible sinking feeling, this defeated feeling. And then he says in verse 4, he says to God, I mean, this is his prayer. He says, take my life. Just, just end me right here. End my life. He's praying to God. He says, just, just finish me here. What does God do? How does he respond? He does three things. And those three things say a lot about this God who is compassionate and understanding. First, he sends an angel. And what does, he, what does the angel do? The angel touches him. And he makes him a meal. He makes him a cake of bread. And he gives him water. He provides for him. Elijah's tired, and he's hungry. So Elijah eats, and so he sleeps. It's what he needs. What does that tell you about God? God doesn't say, oh, you're depressed? You must have lost faith in me. How many of you grew up hearing that? You got to pray. There must be something wrong with your prayer life. There must be something wrong with your theology. There's something wrong with you. You must be in some sort of sin, and, and now you're feeling it. You're in it. You deserve this. God doesn't preach to Elijah here. He just tells him to he doesn't tell him you need to pray more or, you know, you've, you've been away from me. This is why it's happening to you. This is the angel of the Lord that comes. Whenever you see the angel of the Lord, he's distinct from other angels. The angel of the Lord always refers to Jesus Christ himself before he actually comes to the world, before he's incarnated into the world. And so, and what does he do? He touches Elijah. And he pretty much says, look, you're hungry. You are tired. Here's some food. Get some rest. And that's not how he ends. This is how this whole narrative begins. Later in verse 11, he says, you need my presence. You're looking. You're seeking. I'm going to pass by you. I want to meet with you. That's what he says. God doesn't give Elijah what he expected. God doesn't give Elijah what he is asking for. He wanted to die. God gives him exactly what he needs. He gives him his presence. He gives him his provision, his protection, his peace. I mean, he makes him a cake. I mean, this guy's like depressed, and he says, well, here's a cake. Get some rest. What does that tell you? He understands. He knows. You know how many psalms there are where the psalmist is just talking about his depression and his darkness. And you ever wonder, like, why is this psalm in there? There are some psalms. Look at Psalm 88. We're going to actually be looking at that psalm soon. And Psalm 88 has no redeeming verse in the entire psalm. It just ends with, this life stinks, pretty much. I'm in darkness. This life sucks. Why is it there? You know why? Because he's praying to God. The psalms teach you how to pray. You can go to a God who understands, who knows you and hears you. And that's exactly what we're saying here. That the God of the Bible is a relational God. He calls himself our good shepherd. He cares for us. In a sense, he's human. He's more human than you 
in a sense. You see that? And he listens. So that's the second thing he does. He listens to him. The best counselors, the best counselors, if you've ever seen a counselor, they give you the best counsel, but they also ask the best questions. And they listen incredibly attentively. Two times he asks in verse 9, nine and verse 13, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now I'm going to ask you, do you think he's asking Elijah because he doesn't know? This is Elijah before the king of the universe, before the creator of the world. And, and you think he's asking because he doesn't know? He knows. Then why does he ask? It's so that Elijah can respond, so that Elijah can process, Elijah can share, and by doing that, it's so that Elijah can know why he's there. In verse 4, Elijah says, I'm no better than my ancestors. In fact, most of the text, it's Elijah talking. He says in ver verse, uh, ver verse 10, he says, I've been zealous. I worked hard. I had great ideas. I, I had huge plans for this, and now I'm dying out here. Where are you, in a sense? Where were you when all this was going on? Now everything I've done, it's gone to waste. Everyone's gone. Now I'm alone. Here's Elijah before the king of the universe, before the creator of the world, and yet he's so self-absorbed, and, and yet... God just lets him talk. God just lets him talk and he listens. Thirdly, he speaks. He says, listen, I want to meet with you. I want to come into, I'm, you're going to come into my presence. Look at the presence of the compassionate God and how he treats this depressed soul, this self-absorbed, discontent person. I mean, today, what do we say? We say, are you depressed? Something must be wrong. Something's wrong with you. Or we say, well, it's a chemical thing. It's a physiological thing. You need to take some meds. I tell you, there's some meds that'll really help. Or, or we say, what did you do wrong? I mean, really, what, what's wrong with what you're doing? Just express yourself. All those things sound good, but none of those things by themselves will address the real complexities of your life. God is not like that. God is not like us. I mean, we have such a one-dimensional picture of how to solve things in life, and we are so short-sighted, so pragmatic. God here, he provides for Elijah's needs. He listens to him, and he provides for him. He listens to him, and then he speaks into it with great compassion mixed with great clarity. I mean, this is him probably in his most, he's, this is a suicidal, discontent person, and yet he gives him what he really needs. Why does he do that? Think about this. In verse 8, Elijah travels 40 days to go to Mount Horeb. So he's in the wilderness for 40 days. It's the way God's people in, in those ancient times, it's the way they traveled the wilderness and traveled the desert for 40 years. They're synonymous here. And, he, and he's seeking God. When's the last time anyone's ever done anything like that? But think about this. For Elijah to have even the strength to seek God, for him to have the strength to seek what God, what does God give him? Does he give him a Bible study? You know, Elijah's pouring his heart out. And he's just raw and he's just sad and depressed. And he's pouring his heart out. Does God say, well, here, like, let me turn you to this book. You know, does he give him a Bible study or a devotion or, or, or an admonishment or rebuke? No, he doesn't do that. He gives him food. He gives him rest. Look at the compassion of God. He's incredibly compassionate. Secondly, he's wise. Why, why, why is Elijah going to 
Mount Horeb. Why is Mount Horeb? I mean, verse 8, Mount Horeb is called the mountain of God. You see, Horeb has another name. Some of you, if you've grown up in the church, you might know this. It's Sinai. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. That's where Elijah was going. And in verse 9, when he gets there, he goes into this cave. Why is that important? Because centuries before, you had Moses. In the second book of the Bible, you have Moses. Moses is lost. Moses is directionless. And in Exodus chapter 32 and 30, 33 and 34, Moses goes up that same mountain at Sinai, and he tells God, show me your glory. In other words, I'm looking for you. I want to see all of you. I want to see your whole presence because my life right now, everything, all of our plans have been ruined. These people are in idolatry, just like in Elijah's time. They're in idolatry. They're worshiping this golden calf. Everything is falling apart. I want to see you. I want to be near you. I want your whole presence. In other words, I want to know you. And God, what he does is he takes Moses to this cleft of a rock, into this cave. It's like a cave. And he says, I'm going to pass by you, just like he says to Elijah. You see that? Elijah is confused. He's run down. He's tired. He's at the end of his life. So what does God do? He calls Elijah out. He says, I want to see you. Elijah came to see God. Elijah likely came to the very place, that very spot where Moses came to see God centuries earlier. And he says, I'm really confused here. I'm finished. This is the end of my life. And in verse 11, God says, I'm going to pass by. And how does he pass by? I mean, this is just like he did with Moses. Keep in mind, in verse 7, God comes as the angel of the Lord. He's already there. He's already near. Now in verse 11, Elijah gets this terrible wind. It's like a hurricane. It tears up the rocks. It tears up the mountain. And so he's there in this cave, and he sees the the wind. Then he gets an earthquake. And the earthquake, I mean, all the rocks are shaking. Then in verse 12, he gets the fire. Why these three things first? Because most of the time, when you see a wind, when you see an earthquake, when you see the fire in the Old Testament, you'd say, well, this is how God appeared in those ancient times. God is in these things. This means God is near. In the book of Exodus, God is in the fire in this bush that is burning. And again, on Mount Sinai, it was like Sinai as a mountain was on fire. And it said, we read this in the call to worship, Moses himself says, I am terrified. I'm trembling with fear. This is how God came near back then. And it was, in a sense, how he came near. But in the end, in verse 12, God ultimately comes in a gentle whisper. He wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. He comes in a gentle whisper. In the previous narrative, Elijah is on Mount Carmel, and a fire comes. God is in the fire, and he says, yes, yes, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm expecting. But then in chapter 19, God cooks for him. He listens to him. He, gave, he gives him his gentleness, a gentle voice. That's what Elijah got. He said, where's the power? Where is the fire? He says, I worked hard for this. I mean, I was zealous for you. Where are you? This is what I get? I'm the only one left now, and so I'm so disappointed. You have failed me in a sense. I asked for a fire, and you gave me a grill. You cooked me food. He blames God for his failures, and here it is. It's his view of God. It's our view of God that's the problem. 
we often say this, I got plans. This is where I think God has taken me. I mean, I need God to pull through for me. And so you go to your community group, can you guys pray for me? Can you all pray for me? Because this is where I need to go. This is what I'm on. Pray for my job. Pray for, the, pray for my future spouse. Pray for my children. I've got these problems, you see, and, and this is how it's got to resolve. So can you pray for this to happen? We start to say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, this is what I need. This is what I want. Can you pray for this? That's what we often do. I need God to pull through for me. We have a plan. We want the fire. You did it for Moses. You came down uh, to Sinai in fire. And then you don't get the fire. You get that small voice. You get that whisper. What does that show you? Because we're super disappointed when that happens. God's saying, I don't owe you anything. And you can't control me. And you don't own me. And you can't buy me. In a sense, he's saying, Elijah, you brought this pain on yourself. You brought this pain out of your own expectations of me on yourself because you came to me for things, because it's been all about your plan, but you didn't come to me for me. I have a plan. Verse 15, he says, I want you to go back. I want you to not give up, essentially. I want you to go back. Don't give up. You're not finished. You're not done for. That's what he says. That's what he's saying, essentially. I want you to anoint Hazael and Jehu, and I want you to do this and do that. Don't think that just because I'm not doing what you want that I'm not in control. I mean, Elijah, essentially what he's saying is I don't trust you because things didn't turn out my way. I, I don't, I'm not trusting you. I've got my own plans, and that's what I trust. It's an arrogance there. You see that? And that plan fails, so he says, well, now I'm the only one left. And God says, well, I have Hazael. I got Jehu. In that last verse, he says, I have 7,000 people that I'm holding back right now. I reserved. Do you see that? The issue is not God has abandoned me. The issue is that at one point, did you abandon God, pushed him, pushed him into the periphery for your own plans? Now, if you grew up in the church, and many of us here, we've grown up in the church, a lot of us, our view of God hasn't really changed a whole lot since you were in youth group in high school or in middle school. It's a big issue. You know why? It's because over the years, as you've grown up, you've got this youth group understanding, some sort of, I don't know what kind of youth groups y'all grew up in, but you have some sort of youth group understanding of God, and over the years, you've, you've instead invested a tremendous amount of time and energy in other more important things in your life. This is your plan. It begins with college, and then grad school, and then work, and relationships. And you're kind of doing your thing, and you're expecting and you're assuming that God is just kind of coming along with you. You see? That's your plan. And God's eventually been kind of pushed out little by little onto the periphery. You just kind of crowded him out. You squeezed him out. And Elijah, he is a prophet of God. He is God's sent prophet. And if he is like that, oh, we can all be like that. We are all like that, aren't we? Most likely, Hazael is a worldly king, a pagan king, most likely. You know what that means? It's God's way of telling Elijah, look, there's a lot of stuff you don't understand. The world is falling apart. 
there are people that you didn't want in office, and they're in office. There are people that, that there are things, there are laws coming to fruition that you didn't want. There are things that are happening in the world, and it's like, where is God in any of this? There are things happening in your own personal life. You know, like, this is not how it was supposed to be. This is not how my family was supposed to be. This isn't how my life was supposed to turn out. My relationship wasn't supposed to end up like this. A lot of us say that. Where did my career go? How did it make such a left turn? How did I end up where I am? It was not supposed to end up this way. By anointing Hazael, who's likely a worldly king, God is saying, my plan is what? I'm going to use all of history. I'm going to use evil people and secular people, worldly people. I'm going to use broken people. I'm going to use people like you. You're broken. I'm going to use your sin. A lot of us are like, oh, my life wasn't supposed to turn out that way. I was a good person growing up. How did I fall into this? God says, I'm going to use even that. I'm going to use your evil and your sin and your just, your just poor agenda, your blindness. I'm going to use all this stuff to accomplish my plan because I work not despite your brokenness and evil and sin. I'm going to work through it. I'm working in ways that you can't see. You see that? You've got to broaden your range. You've got to broaden your vision. You think it's, it's over because your plan didn't work out? I mean, is that logical? Because I can't see how God can show uh, himself in my situation. He must not exist. Is that even logical? Is that even intelligent? Forget about the wisdom part of that. Is that even intelligent? Because things didn't turn out my way. God must not be good. Is that even logical? Maybe you just had a bad plan. One of the reasons that we get so discouraged, we get so depressed, is because we only see one way. We're so short-sighted. We're so narrow-minded. We only see our way. This is the way that God has to work to redeem my situation. This is the way that God has to work to redeem the world. The easiest way, the fastest way to get rid of evil, wipe everyone out. The wind and the earthquake and the fire is to show, I mean, he was trembling. It's to show you that if that's what God was going to do, Elijah would be gone too. You see that? But think about this. Here, God's saying, I'm working in ways that you can't see. I'm doing 10,000 things for my glory and for your good. So the question is not, where is God in my life? Rather, the question is, why don't I see God? And that's exactly why Elijah's there. He wants to see God. He is, he is so self-absorbed, and he, and he himself, he has confused his spiritual maturity with his zeal. We think that because we labor hard in the church or because we're in the church and we're, we think that's what growth is. How many of y'all think that way? That, oh, because I'm here and because I'm part of community groups or because I'm serving the community, I'm growing. That is not the mark of growth. That may be the means in some ways, things that God works through, but that is not the mark nor the indicator of growth. That is not. You see that? Elijah is so, he's confusing maturity with his zeal, with his hard work, with his prayer life. In fact, his religiosity, and that's what that is, it's religiosity. His religiosity actually prevented him from seeing what God is actually doing. So God basically had to tell him straight up. And so he only saw one solution. 
I need God to bring the fire. But he overlooked the gospel. He overlooked this compassionate God. Because if he saw the compassionate God, he would see that he is a wise God, a patient God. We see all this stuff happening. And we get so angry. Where is God in any of this? You forget that he is a compassionate God and that he is a patient God. One day, it all comes to an end. But he is waiting and he is patient. You see that? God is going to be patient with evil. He's going to be patient with sin. He's going to use our brokenness. He's going to use our sinfulness. He's going to use people like Hazael to bring the people back to him. So we are so narrow-minded. We are so short-sighted. We are so pragmatic. Now, you've got to wait and think about this. Moses, he got the presence of God. Moses got the fire. I mean, Moses saw it. Elijah only got the whisper. He only got God in a whisper. Why do some people get Jesus' compassion while other people get Jesus' fire? Why do some people get Jesus' harsh rebuke and other people just get a, a prayer or a touch? Why do some people get Jesus' admonishment and, and rebuke and teaching and other people just get Jesus' healing? Why is it like that? And the answer, I mean, it's pretty, you may, it makes sense. Different people need different things. We all want the same thing. Different people need different things to get it. How's that play out in here at Metro? In, in the church, we have God's word where you get counsel, you get rebuke, you get admonishment, you get instruction. You get uh, God's community. You have community groups. You have corporate worship. We have God's celebration, and we have the joy, and we have experiences of that everywhere. We have God's service and his compassionate hands, and so we're out there and we're giving, delivering food and essentials and supplies, and, and, and it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you are, if you have a need, you wanna, we want to fill that. We're doing that right now. We have our Easter outreach program, but we've been doing this year-round. We get together in community groups, and we go out there and we serve the body and serve the community. People who aren't even Christians, who don't even know God, acknowledge God, are thankful for God, people maybe even running from God, and yet they get food. They get food. That's a compassionate touch. You see that? You get all that. The church is designed to give you all the dimensions of God's voice in his worship, in his counsel, in his instruction, in his word. You get all the dimensions of God's voice in his community, in the word. It's rooted in the word. Even in service, as long as that service is rooted in the word, you got to plug into the church. And God will give you what you need, and it's wise. It is wise. Just don't give up. Don't give up on, on that little seedling of faith that you may think you have. Maybe God is giving you that. Don't give up on that. You don't walk away because things aren't coming according to the plan. There's a lot more to the plan. And you're going to find it's not your plan. It's God's plan. And he's a gracious God in his plan. That's, a th that's the last point. What is that gentle whisper? What is that still, small voice, so to speak? We need to know because clearly God is saying, that's the ultimate way that I come. Sometimes he comes in a wind. Sometimes he comes in an earthquake. Sometimes he comes in a fire. But ultimately, the way he comes is not through the wind and the earthquake and the fire. Notice, Elijah gets the wind and the earthquake and the fire, but he's still safe. 
He's just tucked away. He's untouched. Why? I mean, the rocks are torn up. There's an earthquake. Everything's being burned around him. But Elijah is saved. Remember Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel, the fire comes down. The rocks are torn up. They're burned up. The soil, the ground is burned up. But there's no lasting effect. What will last? My voice, he says. That whisper. His promise. His presence. His spirit through the word. On one hand, you see Christianity, and if you've been exploring Christianity, you recognize and you learn pretty quickly it's a personal experience. It's a singular personal experience, but on the other hand, it's a personal experience of a rational truth. It's got to be rooted in truth through the word of God. God is saying that if you want to know God, instead of looking for that miracle or that mystical thing, that mystical experience, that emotional experience, which is always conflicting with each other and always up and down, you've got to go to God's word. That's his voice. We all have access to that. It's available to us. The more you access that voice, you're going to come to see this is the voice of God. First, you're going to hear it, and then you're going to heed it. And the voice of God, it's not just his teachings. It's not just his commands. It's not just his rebukes. You know what's really going to shape you? I mean, why is God's voice so powerful? Because it's so loving. Because it's so compassionate. And through that compassion, you're going to see his wisdom. And through that wisdom, you're going to see, wow, he is loving and he is gracious. I mean, Elijah, he wanted the earthquake. He wanted the wind. He wanted the earthquake. He wanted the fire. But if he really got that, he would have been wiped out too. You see that? Instead, when the wind came and the earthquake came and the fire came, he hid in the cave. Centuries before, Moses hid in the cleft in a rock in a cave. And so he was spared. And centuries later, now you have Luke chapter 9. Jesus Christ himself is on a mountain. And there he's standing on that mountain with who? With Moses and Elijah. The disciples saw him, and he was transfigured, meaning he was glorified. He was brilliant. You see all the beauty and the brilliance of God in Christ. And they're talking, the three of them, they're talking about his death, Moses and Elijah. You see, both of them, they've experienced the presence of God because they had been hidden in the rock. They've been hidden from the, so the heavy brilliance of God as he passed by is pelting the rock. You see that? And Elijah and Moses, they're safe. As the brilliance of God is passing by, they were getting the real fire, a greater fire, a greater quaking. You see that? A greater wind. The presence of God and his voice, that's what they heard. But the rock is being pelted. Now, centuries later, Jesus is standing on that mountain with Elijah and Moses, and they are standing with the ultimate rock of their salvation. The true rock in his fullness, in his ultimate glory, in his ultimate brilliance and beauty. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? On the cross, Jesus Christ gets an earthquake. Do you know that as he was hanging on the cross, there was an earthquake, there was a shaking. Did you know that? So the rocks split and the ground shook. The holy temple curtain had torn from top to bottom. And Jesus Christ, he's burning up, essentially. Why? He's getting the, it's not just the physical earthquake that he was experiencing. He was experiencing the cosmic earthquake. He got the fire of God. 
And so he got the cosmic wind, the cosmic earthquake, the cosmic fire. Those things always represented the judgment presence of God. And on the cross, the wrath of God is pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. And so Jesus is receiving the cosmic quaking, the cosmic thunder, the cosmic fire of God, the cosmic ultimate judgment of God. But this time around, there was no compassion. There was no voice. There was no gentle voice. And so on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was receiving the absence of God. He was receiving the wrath of God. There was no gentle voice there. And so as our rock, he was standing there and the wrath of God is pelting against Jesus. And so he was just ripped and torn to pieces. Not only was he shredded on the outside, He was completely torn to pieces on the inside. The Trinity, they say, metaphorically, forensically, was being separated as God the Father was turning away from Christ, his own son. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus Christ was torn to pieces so that we could be healed and we could be made whole. Jesus Christ got the absence of God. Why? So that we could receive the presence of God. Jesus Christ got the wrath of God. Why? So we could have the compassion of God. Just like Moses who hid in the cleft of the rock. And so as God passed by, he was pelting his brilliance and his beauty. It's so brilliant and so beautiful. It was just pelting against the rock. And Moses was hidden safe. Just like Elijah who hid in the rock in the cave. As that same glory passed by, We cannot hide ourselves in the rock of our salvation, who is Jesus Christ. And when we do, we are shielded from the ultimate judgment, from the ultimate penalty. God is saying, you see, you are shielded from the one thing that ultimately will ruin you, and that is the absence of God, the wrath of God. We are protected for all time, for eternity, so that instead of getting the power and the pelting, we get his presence. You see that? Because the wrath of God was pelting against Jesus as our rock. And so we get to hear his voice, that gentle voice. You don't want the earthquake. You want the gentle voice. So stop looking for the wind. Stop looking for the earthquake. Stop looking for that one powerful expression of the fire that's going to say, yes, God is here. Stop looking for that one sign of rescue from all of our problems and all of our fears, God says to Elijah, I want you to go back. Just hang in there. I'm there. I'm in it, he says. And that's what he's saying to you. I'm in it. Look to the cross. Look to the rock of our salvation. And through God's word, you will hear his voice because the word points to Jesus Christ. He is everywhere. And he is the brilliance of God. He is his word. Knowing Christ will lead you to an intimacy with God. There's his presence, that intimacy. That's going to give you peace. It's going to point you to his compassion. It's going to point you to his sacrifice. It's going to point you to his love. And and it's also his wisdom. So it's going to point you to his vision, what he's really going for. We're looking at like this problem as our barrier because we are so small, and yet God says, that, that's not a barrier. This is my real plan. You see that? 
You're going to see God at work, and he's using the good things in your life and the bad things in your life and the evil in your life, the injustices, the oppression, the hurt. He's doing 10,000 things for his glory and for your good to bring about his ultimate plan. It's all being interwoven into his plan to redeem his people. That wind, that earthquake, that fire, they are powerful, but they are never intimate. None of those things are intimate, but God's voice, his wisdom, his counsel, his tenderness, his presence, it's going to give you rest. It's going to soften your heart into an intimate relationship with God. So if you feel like you're just being blown away, remember Jesus Christ took the ultimate power of God. Some of us were like, but I'm quaking and I'm shaking. Jesus Christ took on the ultimate earthquake, the only earthquake that can truly split you in half. Some of us are feeling the heat and the fire and the pressure. Jesus Christ took on the ultimate fire. He endured the hurricane. He rode the hurricane. He endured the earthquake. He went through the fire. He was consumed for his people to make us unmovable, unshakable, unconsumable. So hear him. Rest in him. He says, eat. We're about to do that in a moment. And then he says, rest. Experience his tenderness. Let's respond to him right now in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray briefly.